Hey, this is Dan, just dropping you a quick line before you start this episode to let you know a couple of things. What you're about to listen to is one of the classic best of episodes of Assorted Goods in its older format. And by older format, I mean the sandbox and completely disorganized style that Assorted Goods was for its first few years of existence. Now, since then, the feed has been cleaned up and there's 12 of these classic episodes. And you should know, if you're a new listener, that these episodes are not really what the show is now. But they're still good and they're still worth listening to. But just be warned that if you're looking to get into assorted goods as it is now, that you probably want to go to the latest episode in your feed. Start listening from there. Throughout the episode, you might hear certain things get mentioned, like the website or the social media. Now, those have changed. So don't go chasing those websites or links after the episode. Go to these ones instead. The website has now disinformed.ca, CA for, you know, Canadians like me. And that's where you can find all the assorted good stuff that is mentioned in these episodes. You can find the source lists and additional information. They have all moved to there. In terms of emailing, you can email me now with the new email, dan at disinformed.ca. And if you want to follow on social media, Twitter and Instagram, the new handles are at disinformeddan. And hey, look, all three of those are kind of similar with each other, creating some sort of uh, continuity. People tell me that's important. But anyways, whether you're a new listener or a returning listener, I hope you enjoy this classic episode of Assorted Goods. And then I hope you subscribe to the show and come along for the ride with the new episodes as well. And as always, thank you for listening and enjoy. Hey, what's going on, folks? Welcome to Assorted Goods, the podcaster's journey to learn a little more about the world one story at a time. I'm Dan, your host. Thank you for stopping by for this episode. Hope you're doing well out there. Hope you're still being safe wherever you go. Man, this is a weird time to be alive, eh? I don't know. I admit that it's been a bit tough for me at times. I guess I really do miss the normal order of things, you know? I miss grabbing a beer and doing some research at a bar around the corner. I miss going out for breakfast at this little spot across the street from me. Oh, man, that place is great. But I know we'll all get back to those things someday soon. It's beers and breakfasts here in the apartment for the time being, I guess. Anyways, as I ramble on about my business, let's get down to the podcast business. If you haven't caught up with the previous episodes, that's cool. They're always fresh and ready for listening, so make sure you catch up on some of the latest from the show. And if this happens to be your first time listening to Assorted Goods, welcome. Hope the show provides you something of value, and I hope that it's just the first of many listens I can earn from you. Every episode of Assorted Goods is different. Kind of. I think. Well, that's up for you to decide, I guess. But this episode, though, we're going to take a dive into everybody's favorite internet shopping center. The place where you can find anything and everything. I'm talking about Amazon, of course. How they got started, how they got so big, and why their ridiculous level of success is actually trouble in a lot of ways. So this one should be fun. A chance for Dan to attempt to ruin something new. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy this. But seriously though, it's the largest company on the planet, and its reach has grown with the coronavirus forcing everyone to shop online, and it's run by the richest man on earth, so maybe it's good for us to, you know, 
figure out a little more about all that stuff. Anyways, just a couple of things to touch on here. I continue to plug the audio drama podcast that I contribute my lovely voice to, Dispatches of Disassociation. It's a great show. ton of fun to make, sort of a soap opera, mystery, drama with spins of humor all over. And the episodes are short and sweet, so it's not a big, scary commitment. And I hope you'll give it a listen as well. You can find Dispatches of Disassociation anywhere you get your podcasts. Also, I recently made my third and now fourth appearance on the podcast Round and Round, something that may be a little bit more regular from now on, possibly a co-hosting role for old daddy boy here. But for now, you can see me and Round and Round's host Jeff talk about a collection of random stories from the news. No wonder I stop by all the time. But it's also a chance to see me ramble off the top of my head about some more serious topics as well. And I also had the chance to do an interview with the podcast One Good Question, where host Leon Davis and I discussed the last month of protests surrounding the death of George Floyd, what it took for me to make the two episodes of Assorted Goods about the Tulsa Massacre, as well as a bunch of thoughts about being podcasters. And it was a great chat, so I hope you'll check that out as well. It's also a good time to mention Assorted Goods as part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the collection of podcasters that has been my rock of support for over a year now. Hope you'll check out their lineup of shows from pop culture to news to comedy and so much more. You can find all their shows at nophonynetwork.com and go nuts. And Assorted Goods is also part of the brand spanking new All the People podcast network, which is just getting off the ground but is also filled with great people who support this show. So, lots of opportunities in the future here, I hope. Okay, enough plugs. We want the goods, Dan. Get to it. I know. There's always too much to mention. I'm getting kind of busy with all this podcast stuff, you know? Oh, mama, I finally made something of myself. But, all right, fair enough. You paid your dues. Let's get to the action and start the show. All right, this is a bit of a longer episode, so we're going to dive right into it. Not a lot of setup here today, because, you know, I said in the opening what the story was all about, but the reason that I wanted to talk about Amazon this episode is because throughout all the craziness of the news cycle in the last couple of months, one little nugget of news passed without much notice. The tidbit in question was the projection that was released stating that Jeff Bezos, founder and CEO of Amazon, could become the world's first trillionaire. Yeah, let's sit on that idea for a minute. A trillionaire. By the year 2026, that was the projection at least. Now, just how out there is the idea of being a trillionaire? Well, when I was writing the script for this episode, Microsoft Word marks the word trillionaire as not being a word. Billionaire is fine. But apparently trillionaire wasn't actually listed as a real word yet. I don't know, maybe people never thought somebody would actually have that much money to their own name. But, hey, life is full of surprises, isn't it? Now, before we go anywhere with the story, let's settle on this thought. First, the projection was based on Bezos' current rate of growth for his net worth, which sits at roughly $150 billion right now. Just a little bit of change, eh? And it's growing at a rate of 34%. And, well, I don't know a ton about economics, but... I would guess that things staying at exactly the same constant for six more years is probably not likely. But at the same time, I guess it's also possible that this rate of growth could get even larger, and maybe a trillion dollar net worth would be a big breeze for old Jeff. Also, 
there's the classic caveat of this whole net worth thing that so many people like to bring up whenever this guy's wealth is mentioned. And that's the fact that net worth isn't direct cash money that is spendable at any moment. So much of it is tied up in the market and Amazon's stock prices. And yeah, that is true. But nevertheless, it is capital that belongs to the person or the company's name. For a quick lesson, and by lesson I mean I googled the definition, net worth is simply the value of all total assets minus any liabilities or debts. So a trillion dollar net worth does mean that Jeff Bezos would be a trillion dollars in the positive overall. Not bad. I mean, making a little extra in tips for a night of work is not bad. Being worth a trillion dollars? Not totally sure there's a quick, concise way to say that yet. Okay, but more caveats. For one, Amazon the company is already past the trillion dollar mark in value. And also, they're not alone. They joined Microsoft, Apple, and Alphabet, which is Google's parent company. So there's a larger thing with these massive trillion-dollar companies, but this episode, I just wanted to focus on Amazon. I am only one man here, after all. I can only attack one corporate giant at a time. But back to the trillion-dollar net worth, because there's some fun facts, although the fun may not be guaranteed, about the level of wealth Jeff Bezos already has. And I admit I got some of these from those clickbaity articles, you know, the whole, like, 10 mind-blowing facts about blah, 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 blah. Anyways... Bezos is the wealthiest man of the world, as I said, but he apparently makes about $2,500 a second, which means in the time it took me to say that last sentence, and this one, he's made more than the remaining balance of my student loan. He makes enough money that would change my current life situation in the time it takes to sneeze a couple times, and then, you know, come out of that post-sneeze stupor where you're like, whoa, what? Oh. Anyway, if you made $7,000 an hour, since the birth of Christ, you still wouldn't catch big bald Bezos. It's crazy. And you can probably diddle with the math all day to make up some more of these, quote, fun ways of realizing the same thing. Amazon, and yes, also multiple other companies, and the guys who sit at the top of these companies, and of course it's always guys, but like Jeff Bezos, these people are unfathomably wealthy, like literally unimaginably wealthy. You can't conceive of this much wealth past a certain point it's just not possible it just becomes abstract you really can't wrap your head around it as an everyday person making a normal living so okay what the hell are we doing here this episode well again like i said at the top i thought it would be a good lesson for us all to get to know amazon a little better and specifically just a little bit about the man behind it all why well, I mean, the point of the podcast is to try to figure some things out and learn a little more. You know, it's kind of the thing around here. But also because I do believe, or at least going into researching this, I suspected that there are likely some glaring issues with all this unchecked growth and expansion. I mean, at no point in history has anyone ever accumulated this much wealth and therefore power as Jeff Bezos currently has. And therefore I'd have to assume, based on life experience here on planet Earth, that not everything has been sunshine and lollipops the whole way through. And I think you, the listener, know that too. Immense success, to this level, almost assuredly has problems, exploitations, shady shit that raises big questions. Like, should any single person or company really hold this much power and wealth? Are we okay with that? Are we okay with the implications and the residual effects? I know some people are. And I'll get back to that idea a little later. 
But whether you've noticed or not, Amazon has taken over our lives. Okay, all right, not to be dramatic, but it's kind of true, isn't it? Do you even recall what life was like before Amazon made every item imaginable appear at your door? Did we just go without things? Oh God, imagine that. Not having the things I wanted a drop of a hat. Oh, what a nightmare. And, all right, I'll fully admit up front, because honesty and communication are crucial for this host-listener relationship we're developing here. But I'm really not a fan of any of this stuff. I mean, sure, I like Amazon's delivery. I like two-day shipping. I like how easy it is. I like the products that the other trillion-dollar companies make, too. I like super-fast smartphones. I rely on one to keep up with doing this show. I like Google answering all my dumb questions. How do you think I do all the research? And I like all the tech. Again, who doesn't? But there is also something creepy and weird and maybe just a little flat-out suspect about A, people or companies that embark on this endless climb to unlimited wealth, and B, whenever it's packaged with a smile as though there isn't something underneath that deserves a closer look, which in the case of Amazon is literally packaged with a smile on the box. In general, I'm not a fan of this growing billionaire club of executives. I won't deny the bias that I have coming in, so, you know, take the presentation I have planned for you here with a little grain of salt. But also, I'm sure the billionaires will survive the critical analysis of a tiny podcaster. Watch out! He's got dozens of listeners! <laughs> I know, I'm a real threat. But that being said, let's start from the beginning. How Amazon got started, and how they got so big. Two simple ideas to lay the groundwork here, and also to help us get to know our favorite retail giant. But while we do that, it also helps for us to get to know a little bit the man behind the billions, Jeff Bezos. So let's jump back in time here and start with Jeff Bezos himself. Born Jeffrey Preston Jorgensen in 1964 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Representing the ABQ. What up, biatch? <laughs> All right, I admit, I just wanted an excuse to put that clip in the show, but... Anyway, Bezos took the last name of the man his mother married when Bezos was about four years old. He never had contact with his biological father. And I bet that guy has some regrets now, huh? By all accounts, Bezos learned hard work and discipline from his adopted father. Growing up, Bezos was apparently an extremely techie and gifted kid, always building things and coming up with clever new ideas. Unsurprising that the world's richest man was a creative child, really. But Jeff Bezos would move with his family to Texas and then to Florida, where he would attend high school and was a pretty typical overachiever. Class president, valedictorian, all that good stuff. While in high school, Bezos apparently used the family garage as his personal science laboratory, continuing to tinker and build all sorts of things. Man, in high school, all I was good at was PlayStation. And now look at me. That's right. Anyway, once out of high school, Bezos wanted to follow in the footsteps of one of his early idols, Stephen Hawking and attended Princeton to major in physics, but then soon switched to a double major in electronics and computer science. It's all coming together now, eh? Now, after graduating from Princeton, Bezos worked on Wall Street, until, as the story goes, in 1994, he read an article about the Internet, which was still confusing everybody at the time, and had those awful phone line dial-up tones in order to connect. Yeah, if you remember those, you know what I'm talking about. Those were the days... But that article stated that the internet was growing at a rate of 2,300% per year, 
an astounding number that a smart guy like Bezos didn't ignore. He quit his Wall Street job, which at the time he had already risen to senior vice president at a hedge fund by the age of 30, but he had larger dreams. The way I made the decision to leave Wall Street and do this was, you know, it'll sound geeky to you, but um, it was a regret minimization framework. So this is how I actually made That's the decision. Sort of, if I understand it, if I can translate that into English I can deal with, does that mean um, I want to live my life so that in a few decades from now I'm not going to regret it? That's exactly right. Now that clip is from a 60-minute segment from 1999. And looking back over 20 years later, I wonder what regrets and goals a guy like Jeff Bezos still has now at the age of 56, with still another 24 years to go to that regretful age of 80. Oh boy. Hashtag goals. Now here's the thing. Bezos had his influences, like Stephen Hawking, as I mentioned before, but he also really loved Walt Disney. Not for the animation and stories, but as Bezos himself once stated, he loved Disney's vision, that he knew what he wanted to create and made it happen. Bezos' path was similar to Disney, taking an idea that nobody really believed in, finding the funding, and then turning it into a global empire. Bezos' ambition to create something like the company he actually ended up with was seemingly always the plan. You could say he always planned on ruling the world of retail, and maybe ruling even more, which, again, is one of those aspects of Bezos that sounds like one of those inspirational hell yeah bro, hashtag goals, rise and grind, etc. kind of things, but to me at least, it also kind of indicates a drive that disregards morality on the way. Business success by any means kind of thing. But that's a bit of conjecture, and honestly, we'll get back to the more complicated matters later on. Anyways, in 1994, Bezos quit his big-time Wall Street job, packed up, and moved with his wife Mackenzie from New York to Seattle, where he came up with the idea for an internet marketplace that would sell and ship items all across America. He received a healthy amount of funding in the hundreds of thousands from friends and family, which must be nice, and then he started Amazon in the garage of his home just outside of Seattle. There Jeff went with those garage laboratories again, huh? And at first he planned to name the site Cadabra, but a mistake from his patent lawyer led to the name Cadaver being patented. And since that doesn't really sound like the best name to draw people in, he then attempted to launch Relentless.com, an even more aggressive and, well, looking back, kind of an ominous name choice, before he eventually settled on Amazon. Now, the company launched in 1995 primarily as a bookstore because of the low price point of books and the massive number of titles that were available to sell. And within a month, Amazon had sold books in all 50 states and 45 countries and was making hundreds of thousands of dollars. It was clear that the idea was a massive hit. So massive that four years later, in 1999, the year that that 60 Minutes clip I just played you was taped, Bezos would be a multi-billionaire. He'd be Time's Person of the Year and would be crowned the, quote, king of cyber commerce. Simply put, Jeff Bezos, a man who's known for a loud laugh that could be heard echoing around his tiny humble office at the time, saw an idea, used the resources he had to make it a reality, and then became the richest man on earth just like that. Admirable, sure. But like I told you, I came into this from a point of skepticism. Of course his path is impressive, there's no disputing that. 
Of course, it's amazing that someone could do all this, but there's also something that is, well, unsettling about someone who continues to aim to do more. Why hate the hustle, Dan? Honestly, I'm not totally sure. Early clips of Bezos show a guy worth billions who still worked in a humble, messy office with a creaky desk who drove an old green Honda to work. He appeared in his early days to be the world's most humble billionaire, maybe along the lines of Bill Gates, another tech billionaire, but time changes people, doesn't it? Being a billionaire for a couple of years, yeah, that's one thing, but being a billionaire for over two decades now? Bezos now, compared to then, surely isn't the same man. And if you watch clips of him from then and now, it kind of seems that way on the surface as well. But I'll leave that alone. Amazon had its share of troubles along the way, too. Barnes & Noble, the bookstore, sued Amazon over their tagline, which at the time was Earth's largest bookstore. Barnes & Noble argued that you actually have to have stores in order for that to be true. And in the end, the suit was settled out of court. I don't know how solid an argument it is when you're arguing semantics, but anyways. Walmart, who has become one of Amazon's primary rivals, even right up to the present moment, also sued Amazon as well at the turn of the millennium, accusing Amazon of stealing secrets after Amazon started hiring ex-Walmart executives. That suit was also settled out of court. There was also the economic disaster of the dot-com bubble of the late 90s, early 2000s. Hundreds of tech startups went under when it turned out that most tech investment was hollow and placed into companies that had massively inflated their values and had significantly lower revenues than was necessary in order to warrant those kinds of investments. But Amazon was not one of those. They continued to make steady enough revenue to survive, although after the lawsuits and the bubble crash, Amazon did lay off thousands of employees, and their stock price plummeted from over 100 bucks a share to roughly $5 a share. Amazon, though, like eBay and other staples of internet commerce at the time, managed to hang on and make it through the dot-com bubble. The thing is, though, Amazon suffered revenue losses in the billions around the year 2000. Profitability, as we'll get to in a moment, has not always been guaranteed for Amazon. In fact, the marketplace has been a constant source of losses for Bezos and the company as a whole, which is one of the things that puzzles me the most about Amazon, and really is something that may be too economically complex for my wee little brain to wrap around, but how can you always be losing money yet still making more and more and ever expanding? How the hell has Amazon not only survived, but managed to continuously get bigger? From what I've been able to find, the losses Amazon suffered around the crash of 2000 were survivable because the basis of their business was still solid. Jeff Bezos, in an interview, described the fact that they knew the company was feeling the effects of the bubble bursting, but that the business was still financially sound, and therefore that it was only a matter of time before things started to grow again, and Amazon would recoup the losses in the market, and then some. Which, well, they clearly did, didn't they? Now, I grew up through these years, and you know, I never really noticed Amazon through the early 2000s. eBay, I remember, because of the whole craze and thrill of bidding on items. To be honest, though, I don't think buying things off the internet was really truly common yet. A lot of people did it, sure. The company doesn't become worth billions of dollars otherwise, but it was never like it is now how most people head online to find everything they need. There was always this worry back then about putting your credit card and personal information online and how that would lead to someone stealing your info. 
who knew that your info being stolen would just be a guarantee in the future? But anyways, as Amazon moved into the new millennium, Bezos continued with his ambition to grow and grow and grow. Amazon had expanded across North America and into Europe. And in 2005, Amazon started with two-day free shipping, which we all know now as Amazon Prime, which has since expanded to nations across the globe as well. On top of that, in 2006, Amazon retooled and relaunched an aspect of the company that had struggled for a few years prior, and that was Amazon Web Services, or AWS, which is the cloud computing and server systems that Amazon sells to smaller companies so they can run their own online businesses. AWS, like so much of Amazon's business, was ahead of its time. And now, as a result, Amazon holds a dominant 34% of the cloud computing industry, thanks to AWS, which is far more than anyone else in the business. And AWS now has wider profit margins than Amazon's retail services, since, unsurprisingly, cloud computing and the demand for server space is higher than ever. Again, it's another thing that Amazon seemed to have beat everybody to the punch on. And that's the kind of the thing about Amazon. The company has grown so big, so dominant over the last two decades, that it has actually survived massive losses in the marketplace, losing billions thanks to Amazon Prime's shipping perks, and all of this was in an effort to win in the long run. Yeah, you can lose out on profit for a time, and in some aspects, but you can also become dominant in the retail game by offering shipping that nobody else can match. They're truly big enough to take the hit in order to end up with more control in the future. Increasing your dominant position in a market can be worth taking losses for. Not to mention that those losses created tax write-offs and loopholes, which helped Amazon dodge paying taxes in more profitable years. Again, though, that's something we're going to come back to later on. At the same time, Amazon's acquisitions of companies like Whole Foods and the streaming website Twitch have helped add some additional income. They even now have their paws in media and news. Amazon now owns the Washington Post, for example. I mean, Amazon is so multifaceted, so layered, that it's hard to imagine they started just selling books out of a garage. Just think about it. Kindles are Amazon's expansion of their OG product books. There's Amazon Prime Video, Amazon Alexa's, Jeff Bezos is spearheading an Amazon space program, Blue Origin. Not to mention, again, the dominant position they have in cloud computing. And then, oh yeah, the fact that Amazon is the largest retailer in the world, selling hundreds of millions of different products, shipping to almost every corner of the globe. Every move they've made has been bang on, it seems. But have these moves been bang on because of ahead-of-their-time thinking always? Or has it been because, like I just said... The company has been big enough to outmuscle anyone who encroaches on their territory. Well, could be a little bit of both, really. And it's kind of similar to stories we've heard about Microsoft in their early years, when Bill Gates famously crushed competitors to consolidate Microsoft's market share. Amazon's yearly profits are in the tens of billions still. Jeff Bezos' net worth continues to reach staggering levels, and the company continues to expand seemingly year after year after year. So... Is it even possible for anyone else to get on the ground floor of a groundbreaking idea? Who knows? But let's continue to hammer on the question here. How did Amazon get so big and dominant? Well, it was, of course, having the idea to sell through the internet, right as the internet became a household thing. 
Capitalizing on the wave of the future is always a big ticket to success. They also became so big so fast that they survived a major economic collapse in their sector and managed to work around massive profit losses and stock dips, all while continuing to ride the wave of this new internet e-commerce craze. The losses didn't destroy the company because they still had their foot in the door of the undeniable future of buying crap online. People always want more crap. And they're going to want it faster and faster. Amazon also at the time diversified, created revenue streams in other areas, and used those additional revenue streams to be the backstop for taking more losses in the effort to expand their market share in online retail. All the while, its founder and CEO has managed to not get pushed out by any takeovers or corporate coups. Bezos is still there, still raking in the billions. Jeff and wife Mackenzie even got divorced last year, settling peacefully and handing off a percentage of the company that is worth billions. Easy to take that settlement, I'm guessing. It's been a hell of a run for Amazon, really. I have to admit that. It's an undeniable truth, and it's still ongoing. But it's interesting to see how they managed to cover their bases through thick and thin and keep chugging along. And again, it looks like there's no end in sight for the trillion-dollar behemoth. But, phew, yeah, it's almost too much to break down in a single episode. And to be honest, my intention was not to break down every single aspect of Amazon's business. But remember what I said at the start. We're just getting to know them. And after all this, remember there's a few things I wanted us to all consider. One just how big the company's gotten in 25 years, from a garage to dominating global commerce and boasting the richest man at the head of the company and one of the first trillion-dollar companies in human history. Yeah, it's impressive. But also, the wariness of it all. You can't dominate anything like this without consequences, right? Without problems of exploitation or shady business practices. Jeff Bezos is a creative guy, with a story that could inspire literally anybody. And he does take a ton of heat all the time because of his wealth. But to me, he should. It's a small price to pay to be king of the world. I'm sure he's fine. And men like Bezos also get strong defenses from people who believe, you know, don't be jealous of his success, dude. Just be a gifted kid who overachieves, goes to an Ivy League school, gets a job on Wall Street, becomes a senior VP at 30, quits and gets hundreds of thousands of dollars from its friends and family to start a business that just so happens to be exactly the right thing at the right time, and then continue to push that growth beyond anyone's wildest dreams. And boom, you can be a wildly successful billionaire too. Don't hate, bro. Don't be so jealous. Go do the same thing if it bugs you. I mean, come on. It's that simple. That sounds like people, right? Is that a good impression? No? Yeah? Well, anyways, moving on. Because, look, I told you there was a point, and there is, because the first half of the episode here has been a story of amazing success. Amazon employs hundreds of thousands of people worldwide now. They've connected small retailers to customers across the globe. They've made shipping so fast, nobody could have ever imagined it being so good. Right? Good? Isn't it? I know. I've been giving the game away from the start, really. As we've gotten to know how Amazon came to be a giant of industry, and how the brain behind it all got it all going, there's of course been the looming reality. What skeletons does Amazon have in its closet? And as I wind down this first half, the get-to-know-you part of this episode, I wonder, does anyone care? I mean, you be the judge. The second half is nothing but critical analysis of Amazon's moves. But again, does anyone care? 
Like, really care, I mean. Do I even? I don't know. Sometimes I'm not sure. But let's find out together, shall we? We're going to head to a break now. But when we come back, Amazon's darker side. Tax dodging, labor violations, sick and dead workers in a warehouse, shady business practices that have destroyed smaller businesses, antitrust issues, and the general thought. Have we given Amazon too much power in our modern economy? And is there any going back now? So stay tuned after a few messages from some other excellent podcasts out there, and I'll be right back to crap on Amazon a little bit. (laughs) Right? Stay with me. Assorted Goods will be right back. In a world of utter randomness, one podcast stood up from the bunch. And it was the amazing world of talking shiz. <coughs> Sorry, I had to clear my throat there. Um, yeah, it's just mainly randomness. And focus is definitely not being not focused there. on at all. No. <laughs> uh, our podcast is definitely um, no theme at all. It's literally random and talk about literally everything and throwing in random jokes at any given time. Yeah. We're on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. A- so go ahead, tune in. New episodes weekly. And we're international. International. Very, yes. very well. So tune in. Follow yeah. us on Twitter. See you there. 24 hours is like three weeks. Wookies, lasers, Death Star. So slugs up your butt is bad. Is that what I was gleaned from this? Hi, we're the Culture Quest Podcast. We're on a quest to become more cultured people by discussing a movie, a music album, a book, or anything else really each episode. Check us out, culturequestpodcast.com. Hey, what's going on, good people? I am Marcel. I am your resident DJ. I am the guru of sound. Uh, One thing about me, I am the family man of the show. What's up, y'all? This is Big Lowe's, a.k.a. Mr. Crop Circle himself. I'm the overweight lover that will send you down a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories. Sometimes I think before I speak, but it's me, baby. I'm your boy, Drew. I'm your craft beer swilling, willing to discuss any open subject. And for who we are, we are three brothers with a lot to say. This is barbershop talk for the 80s and 90s, babies. We love to crack jokes and have fun. And also, we do have some serious points as well, too. These are our views on things that you may or may not agree on. So welcome to the chair. Sit back and relax. Because at the end of the day, we We are are Divers and Haircuts. Follow us at DNH Podcast, Twitter, Facebook, IG. Email us at dnhpodcast2019 at gmail.com. All right, welcome back, and wow, was that a jam-packed first half of an episode. This one's running a little long today, I know, and I wouldn't blame me if you take a few breaks, have a breather, go and order something off Amazon because the first half reminded you of that thing you really needed to get. Don't forget to click that two-day shipping. But we're back, and if the first half was all about knowing Amazon, the second half is all about really knowing them and taking a dive into some of the, hmm, let's call them areas of concern. 
And there are a few topics that I want to run through, so I won't waste any more time with the setup and we'll just get right to it. So first off is taxes. And I'm sure you can probably guess what I'm going to say. Amazon doesn't pay anywhere near the kind of taxes you'd expect such a massive corporation to pay. Now, just to jump the gun a bit here, the argument made in regards to the tax payments of companies like Amazon often is that this is how the tax system is supposed to work. And although Amazon takes advantage of loopholes, it hasn't actually done anything illegal, which is true. And also that the point of these loopholes and incentives is to allow companies to reinvest into themselves, therefore creating more jobs and growing their companies even bigger, which sounds nice. But it also sounds like the kind of thing that is really meant for smaller companies to allow them to grow, and not really for the largest company around to endlessly expand. But... Okay, let's get some details here. Amazon is based in the United States, which means they follow the American tax codes. Yeah, they also have to comply with laws in other countries, but their primary jurisdiction, I guess you could say, is America. So as the tax laws are written, and it is often written by people advocating for whatever helps companies not pay taxes, Amazon follows the laws accordingly. The company has come under fire in the last couple of years because in 2017 and 2018, Amazon paid no federal taxes, despite posting record profits in the billions. In fact, not only did they pay no taxes, they actually got over $150 million in tax refunds both years. Aw, good for them. Who doesn't love a nice tax rebate? They did, however, pay $162 million in taxes for 2019, but that was only 1.2% of their $13.9 billion in pre-tax revenue. The corporate tax rate in America is 21%, which is also a significant reduction from the 35% that was in place before the Republican-led tax reform bill that came into effect at the end of 2017. From 2010 to 2018 as a whole, Amazon is believed to have paid taxes at a rate of roughly 12% on over $900 billion in revenues, which resulted in $26 billion in profits. So you see, those loopholes and write-offs, well, they come in handy. Anyway you slice it, Amazon paid far less tax than the basic rates that the law indicates. Amazon defends itself by simply stating that they've paid everything they owe and that their business, which, as I mentioned in the first half, takes a lot of losses and often operates with slim margins. Therefore, it doesn't get taxed the way other businesses would as a result. Basically, the genius of Amazon, I guess you could say, is that the way their business is so complex and has so many ups and downs makes it extremely difficult to track what they should and shouldn't be paying. Tax codes are super complicated, but also so is Amazon's business, especially when you factor in their international pieces too. As one article I found said, it's simply too hard to keep track of everything with Amazon, and so they get away with paying well under the basic rates of taxation. But there's also more to it than that. Like I said before, this is all pretty much legal, it would appear, And how Amazon avoids taxes legally is with maximizing their deductions and credits. For example, in the first half I was mentioning all the ways Amazon has diversified its business. Well, that also means they need to do a lot of research and development, as well as build more corporate infrastructure in order to create these new things, like, say, their drones or space programs or cloud computing. Whatever the case, R&D expenses qualify as reinvesting in your own company, which leads to tax write-offs. Because, like I said before, the tax codes incentivize companies to do just that. There's also the credits they get from posting low profit margins for multiple years, 
Basically, they seemed to be making no money, at least in terms of taxable income, and so they were able to get credits that lasted even into the years where profits soared into the billions. And there's another tax piece that relates to the first half of the episode. When Amazon was new and booming in the 1990s, remember how Jeff Bezos went from the garage office to a billionaire in five years? Well, what helped was a United States Supreme Court ruling in 1992 that exempted internet commerce from state sales taxes, meaning that Amazon used to sell things tax-free, which was another way they were such an appealing place to buy things early on. Brick-and-mortar retail stores were competing with the ease of at-home shopping that Amazon provides, but also the no-sales tax on the online purchases. That's tough to beat. And it also factors into the bigger picture here. Amazon has both used legal frameworks to their maximum potential, and you can't fault them for that, really, but combined with the tactics of layering their business with profit centers of the company covering for the losses of other divisions, allowing those divisions to undercut other businesses and grow Amazon's overall market share. I know I said it before the break, but it's kind of amazing to see how the big picture of the company comes together. They've got all these backstops that allow them to grow in certain areas and cover losses in others, all the while getting away without paying taxes that they really should be. But anyways, let me get back on track here. For now, Amazon is paying a little more taxes than previous years. And the fact that their tax avoidance has made it into mainstream news and even mainstream politics means that they may continue to feel the heat going forward. But nothing can really wrangle in all their tax avoidance schemes without actual tax laws that then force the company to pay. As much as it sucks the big one, again, you can't fault them for taking advantage of the laws that are in place, no matter how crappy those laws are. And there's one additional piece to the tax picture for Amazon. You may remember that the company announced a couple years back that they wanted to open a massive second headquarters, and they held sort of a competition to see which city would win. Part of that competition was that every city that wanted to be considered had to put forth a proposal to appeal to Amazon to come. Part of those proposals? Yeah, you guessed it. Massive tax breaks for the company. And I mean really massive tax breaks. The second headquarters is going to end up being split between New York State and Virginia, with over $1.5 billion in tax credits being handed out to Amazon in the process. Although, those credits are partly contingent on whether Amazon creates the jobs they said they would. But things change, and change quickly. Tax incentives may exist now, and promises of jobs are nice. But this project could take almost a decade, and who knows what the landscape of their business will be by then. It's a lot of faith. And it was also a weird and kind of gross bending over of dozens of cities and states just to be blessed by the hand of the great Amazon, bringing their fruits of prosperity. I don't know. Does it feel like a little bit too much power in the hands of a company? You know, being able to make governments jump through hoops to see how much they can give up just so one of the largest companies on earth comes on over? It's worth thinking about, isn't it? Basically, the framework of the argument that gets laid out in defense of taxing massive billion-dollar companies is this. You have to incentivize companies to reinvest in themselves, which, yes, although that is true, but it detracts from taxes and therefore public works, like, you know, boring old things like uh, public education, infrastructure, which is crumbling everywhere, by the way, or healthcare or public transportation, etc., and since those companies can dodge these massive tax bills, there's less money available for governments to invest in these publicly funded aspects of society. But 
these companies reinvest into themselves and develop their businesses further, which creates, that's right, jobs, 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 the be-all, end-all of corporate tax arguments in favor of keeping the bills low. Let me try to reframe this. Instead of trusting the big, scary government to manage money and fund public goods, let private companies make the world a better place by creating more paid labor and privatizing everything. It's basically a don't-trust-them-trust-us kind of thought, a common theme I notice across a lot of these stories about the potential for abuses of power. Seems legitimate, right? I mean, they have that smiley face on their boxes. You know they're trustworthy. But taxation, of course, is just one of the things that Amazon does that seems a little less than savory. And in reality, it's probably the easiest piece of this to defend because, you know, it's not technically illegal. But some of the other things they do is also not technically illegal either. And so we're going to move on to something new here. And next up in our series of issues here in the second half is a classic for massive companies. One of the greatest hits, you could say. And that's the idea of undercutting competition. But in Amazon's case, it's not so much undercutting competition, but undercutting the sellers who join in and work with Amazon to sell their products online. The common refrain I read when looking at this whole piece of the puzzle was that working with Amazon to sell products was a love-hate relationship, or a, quote, dance with the devil. And I'll try to lay this out simply here to start, for both of our sakes, really. Basically, if you own a small business, you can sell your products through Amazon and get access to their global marketplace, helping small businesses reach customers they otherwise would never have been able to. Now, let's say your item gets hot, catches on, people are loving whatever it is you're selling. Well, Amazon is all about data these days because, well, who isn't about data these days? And as a result, they can see that your little niche item is hot and selling all over. Hey! good for you. That's a small business dream coming true right there. Just to mention, this whole undercutting thing is not 100% totally concrete proven, but that's because it's hard to prove. Amazon, of course, has wonderful corporate emails that defend all their practices, like the tax stuff before. You know, we pay all our taxes according to rules, blah, 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 blah. And they tow the company line in this regard as well. But there are a ton of documented accounts of undercuttings from sellers themselves, many of which either quit working with Amazon or are currently struggling to keep up since Amazon's fees have become unbearable for sellers over the past decade and a half or so. Anyways, your little product is selling well, and Amazon can see that. So, Amazon then contacts the manufacturer directly, has the products made themselves, or they have the same thing made with cheaper materials, a knockoff as we affectionately know them as, now, as the seller, Amazon is beating you on the price already because they went and made their own version of the product and, whoop, popped it into their website. And then here's the kicker. Amazon is in control of everything on their site, of course. So, yeah, they can ensure that their own products get placed at the top of the search results while bearing the originals. With the lower Amazon price and also, yeah, two-day free shipping, it's hard to keep up and compete with that. So as that little small business is selling their product, where do you think they are after all this? Screwed is where. And it's not an undocumented problem. Again, it's not something Amazon admits to. They commonly say that they are simply offering the best options for customers, which, ugh, that business school talk never gets old, does it? But studies on certain fields of products find a common pattern. 
top-selling items seem to show up within a few months being sold from different vendors at lower prices, thus undercutting the original sellers. Businesses who use Amazon have also indicated that the percentage taken as a commission from Amazon has risen, making profits for small businesses, well, smaller. And there's also been curious accusations in articles written about review systems. Knockoff products, from Amazon or otherwise, seem to have glowing reviews all the time, that are often questionable. A regular consumer probably doesn't check the validity of these reviews. And, you know, why would they? But let's just stop for a moment, because you, like me, we all know that when shopping, although those little five-star rating systems seem kind of arbitrary... They also really do affect what we look at and what we buy. I mean, just as a side note, think about podcasting here. Podcasters everywhere are in constant hunt to get people to post five-star reviews for their show. Because we all know that people actually look at those rating systems. I know. I even ask for reviews too. And honestly, I'll take them whether they're five stars or not. Please, just let me know I'm really here. But back to the point. Amazon's business practices have lured in small businesses selling them on the idea that working with Amazon is nothing but good news for small companies looking to expand their reach and tap into Amazon's global marketplace. But the evidence over the past years is just what we've said here. Amazon appears to be exploiting small sellers in order to gather data, and in turn, use that data as sort of a free market research tool, which they then use to replicate products and sell for lower prices ensuring that their products get seen on the website first, and then they deliver them with speed and efficiency that no business anywhere can compete with. It all adds up to cutting every piece of fat off the process and screwing the little guy over, and then consolidating an already dominant position in the retail market. I told you this was a big business greatest hit. Now, moving on to another problem area, and it's in an effort to squeeze as much Amazon slander as I can into this episode. I don't think they're going to be endorsing this show anytime soon. But I want to talk now about probably the largest area of concern surrounding Amazon, and that's labor. Now, I've talked about the topics of workers' rights and labor issues and, you know, rethinking the common workday on this show before. What can I say? In reality, I'm a lazy man at heart, and I think nobody should ever have to work. But, well, okay, being serious, I believe in dignity and fairness for workers. You know, more radical ideas like a living wage and health benefits and paid time off, maternity leaves, and on and on. Yeah, those crazy things. Now, Amazon, though, has, for the better part of the last decade, been a pretty strong opponent to workers' rights. Or more so, they simply haven't adhered to the kind of standards you'd expect to be met in a workplace, let alone the workplaces of one of the world's largest companies. Or maybe poor conditions is exactly what you'd expect from them? Never totally sure. Now, this isn't something overt. Again, it's not like Amazon is out there trying to declare workers suck and they don't deserve shit. It's like the other issues we've touched on this episode. Their statements on their working conditions is one thing, but their actions and the accounts from people who have actually been there say something very different. So, let's take a look at the problems surrounding Amazon's employees. And maybe the best setup for this part of the episode is the statement that numerous Amazon warehouse employees have made that the people working in the warehouses are treated like robots. That's the exact term that comes up multiple times if you look up Amazon warehouse labor issues. These statements are based on the expectations for productivity that exceeds what just about anybody would consider reasonable for a human being to complete in a day. 
Not that these targets are literally impossible, but they're pretty close. They leave almost no time to even take a minute to breathe. Employees also report having to walk up to 15 miles on a standard shift every day. That's taking the idea of getting your steps in a little bit far, isn't it? And let's start there, because the sheer volume of packages and orders that need to get processed every day creates an environment of always having to keep up with demand. Remember, this is a company that completes billions of orders per year and dominates the American online retail market. Yeah, we've been talking about this all episode. They're huge. So, of course, it's an endless process to ensure deliveries get made, especially when the company offers that lovely two-day shipping. Chop-chop on the orders there, worker bees. And the warehouses are where these problems with labor are the most pronounced for Amazon, because their business, and one of the reasons that the company has been so successful over the past couple decades, is all centered around logistics and data. With so many orders and so many items needing to be sorted, located, scanned, packaged, it's crucial for the logistics to be up to the minute. And in the Amazon warehouses, or as they like to call them, fulfillment centers, another classic example of corporate whitewashing, you know, give something a nice name to make it seem better than it is. Anyways, the quotas that warehouse workers have, who by the way make 15 bucks an hour in America, reasonable compared to other jobs, but still not quite a productive living wage. And I'm sorry, I keep getting off point, so let me try to get back on track here. I'm always scrambling things up, aren't I? But again, quotas. Okay. Stories from workers include the standard of having to scan an item every 11 seconds, 300 items an hour. And these items can range from something small and simple like a kid's toy, or according to many first-hand accounts, more adult toys, all the way up to larger items with a little more muscle required, like, say, big bags of pet food. And this standard of always having to scan and package lasts all day. And if you can't keep up with that, you get written up. Get written up too often, say bye-bye to your job. And because of Amazon's logistics systems, an employee's productivity can be tracked in real time, with the data going straight to the floor managers in the warehouses, meaning that employees are constantly under threat of repercussions. Like, if you feel faint and need a second, you immediately start missing your targets and you can get written up just like that. And logistics is such a central part of so many businesses these days, and it's a central piece of Amazon supply chains. It's also maybe one of the best examples of the crown jewel of the strong capitalist system we have. Maximum efficiency. You know, trimming off all the fat of an employee's day to maximize productivity and then minimize costs. Makes sense, doesn't it? Except for Amazon employees, and I'm sure people in other industries have seen similar processes as well, but... The elimination of inefficiencies is really the elimination of any sort of, quote, downtime at all. And you might be one of those people who says, well, hey, work is work. You're not being paid to stand around. Except, yeah, oftentimes you are. We all are. Because people stop for a few seconds when they work. They use the bathroom, stretch their legs, you know, do things that human beings do. Because workers are, and follow me here, this is crazy, but... <gasps> Workers are also human beings. And frankly, it's that old, you know, if you can lean, you can clean, always be busy mindset, which oftentimes is just kind of gross and actually often leads to lower worker morale. In fact, probably always does. And in the end, lower productivity as a result. So suck it, hard ass bosses around the globe. <laughs> 
But as these Amazon employees have said, people aren't robots. Warehouse workers for Amazon have scanners in their hands all day and scan items as they work. But here's the thing. These scanners will time employees and count down how long they have to scan their next item. And the job itself has wrecked the bodies of countless workers who have had to quit because of serious injuries or more chronic conditions like repetitive back strains, for example. And just put yourself in this position for a minute. Follow me into the mindset of somebody working here, will you? You're making below average wages, working a pretty physically exerting and tough job. You're being pressured by your manager to meet literally robotic productivity goals, and you have a timer in your hand all day where you're always counting down 10 seconds to your next goal. Again, your body's in pain, but if you complain, you're probably going to get fired. If you fall behind, you're probably going to get fired. Just a little bit stressing, can you imagine? But really, just a little bit of worker exploitation that labor standards are supposed to keep from happening, right? Yeah, but oftentimes Amazon is the best option for people to find work in their area. Remember, this is a company that keeps muscling out smaller businesses, meaning that in many places, Amazon is one of a limited set of options for employment. So the stress is a lot to handle for a lot of people. Like a great infomercial, though. But wait, there's more. Stories of the job are one thing. But the scale of terrible in Amazon's nightmare centers, oh, sorry, fulfillment centers, goes way up from there. Those severe productivity goals have led employees and warehouses all over the place to urinate in bottles on shift regularly to avoid having time docked from them. Employees who have experienced injuries or even women who are pregnant have had their jobs threatened for requesting modified duties. There was the case of a warehouse that had no air conditioning so temperatures reached almost 40 degrees Celsius in the building. Sorry, Americans. We do Canadian numbers on this show. Anyways, employees in that warehouse were still told to get cracking on those order goals. People collapsed, needed to go to the hospital, all because they couldn't open the warehouse doors due to, as the company stated, worries about theft. So instead, and yeah, this is true, Amazon paid to have an ambulance sit outside for when employees collapsed or felt ill. And you thought your job sucked. Oh, and there's also been cases of employees working in freezing conditions in warehouses too. Hey, equal opportunity for dangerous temperatures, huh? And these stories continue to go to the extreme, including a now famous case where an employee actually died on the warehouse floor. And after a 911 call, which according to workers occurred 20 minutes after the employee collapsed, which confused the workers because the whole warehouse is being watched and putting a package in the wrong place reportedly had employees get disciplined within minutes. But 20 minutes for a 911 call? Yeah. Anyways, after the employee's death, workers were then told to simply get back to work. There were goals to be met. The stories of Amazon warehouses are pretty much endless, really. The number of complaints could fill multiple podcast episodes on their own. Former workers constantly tell stories of how brutal the conditions are how management didn't provide any meaningful support, how the only thing that matters is meeting targets. For workers on the floor, and managers alike, who as it often turns out are under the gun to meet these crazy targets as well, or it's their turn to get the axe. And all of that is enough to consider on its own. But where Amazon's issue with labor really comes to light is how they respond to these problems. Specifically, 
how they've handled the increase in calls to unionize Amazon warehouse workers. Now, unionization is typically what happens after workers feel abused or taken advantage of for long periods of time. Historically speaking, union membership usually goes up when, for example, wages stay too low for too long, or working conditions are no longer fair in certain industries, which does seem to apply here. And there's a bit of a cycle to this throughout the last century or so. On the flip side, union membership typically eases, or workers no longer feel the need for a union when conditions and wages have been relatively fine for a long period of time. Right now, in this moment in history, the pendulum is probably swinging back towards an uptick in unionization efforts across the workforce, not only in America, but around the world as well. And for Amazon, disgruntled employees have been pushing for unionization for years now. The problem is, as it is in every unionization fight throughout time, that the company holds a lot of power, and efforts are typically pretty hard to follow through with. Unionization is often a bit of a David versus Goliath fight. Companies usually apply a little pressure to employees, and that's often all it takes for most people to simply not participate in the effort. Fear of losing a job, as we can tell through this whole story so far, can be pretty influential. And since Amazon warehouse work is easily replaceable, it's even tougher for a union to gain that foothold. On top of that, Amazon has been active in fighting union efforts, with cases where it appears that Amazon's legal department has actively looked to crush these movements. The state of labor in Amazon's warehouses has been under even more scrutiny since the coronavirus pandemic, where workers have stated repeatedly that conditions are just as bad as they've ever been, and with everyone staying home and ordering even more crap off Amazon, the need to meet quotas hasn't changed, meaning working conditions are even more dangerous than they were before. Take the case of Amazon employee Christian Smalls, who led a walkout of Amazon's employees in Staten Island after Smalls said the company did not follow public safety measures when a fellow employee tested positive for COVID. He was fired the day of the walkout and took to the streets to protest afterwards. Not long after all this, documents were leaked to the media that indicated that Amazon's general legal counsel, a guy named David Sapolsky, had been caught making an effort to take advantage of Christian Smalls in order to smear the unionization efforts of all employees. In the memo, Zapolsky stated that Smalls was, quote, not smart or articulate, and suggested that Smalls be lifted up in the media as the face of the unionization movement as a whole, so that they could then paint the movement as being driven by people who were, what, too dumb to know what they were doing? Something like that? It's not totally clear, although that seems to be the suggestion. The idea was that in terms of PR, Amazon would have an easy win if Smalls became this, quote, face of the movement versus their corporate policies. Amazon continuously responds to issues of workplace conditions with that pretty typical mantra, that they follow all workplace safety rules, that everything is above board, and all these cases are just isolated incidents that only represent a tiny fraction of their massive workforce. But these efforts to crush unions aren't new for Amazon. In 2014, a warehouse in Delaware actually held a vote to unionize. And with Amazon worried that a vote in favor of unionization would cause a domino effect across all their fulfillment centers, they brought in a high-priced legal firm that actually specialized in stifling unions. And in the end, the vote was 21 to 6 against unionization. 27 votes out of 1,500 employees in the warehouse. But we can also go back even further. 
In the year 2000, 400 call center workers for Amazon attempted to unionize, and Amazon shut that call center down. But around the same time was the dot-com bubble that caused Amazon stock prices to drop and the company to lay off over 1,000 workers. So that one, I guess, gets a little lost in the sauce. As for the second headquarters that Amazon is building in New York State, well, there's an issue for them there as well, because in New York State, there's a strong union presence. And at this moment, there's actually an unfolding political battle between Amazon and the state's politicians over which workers will be unionized, whether union workers will help build and maintain the property, and whether new employees will be allowed to unionize if they so choose. Amazon says that they are always open to having the discussions with employees over union efforts, and that Amazon is a safe and enjoyable place to work regardless. And they say it all with a smile, too. And, okay, we're at that point of the show where I've got to bring this whole thing home for you. And, well, got to bring it home for me, too, really. The point of putting together this episode was for me and you to get a chance to know Amazon a bit better. Good and bad. And, yeah, I know I focused on a lot of the bad, especially here in the second half, but... Again, that's because I feel like it's more important than ever to know now, you know? With our current pandemic, online shopping is more popular than ever, and Amazon already has that strong foothold in this market. And they hold a huge market share, which we've been over. So what's hiding behind the well-put-together public persona of a company that is this big? Well, whatever it is, it's worth looking at and considering, and we've looked at quite a lot of it here. Amazon was a brilliant idea by an ambitious founder the right time in history, delivering the right service to people in a way that changed the world of retail. Amazon was cutting edge, ahead of its time, and since then it's expanded into much bigger and better things. Space exploration, cloud computing, rapid delivery that is unmatched anywhere, hundreds of thousands of jobs across the world. Amazon has been successful beyond probably anyone's wildest dreams, except maybe founder Jeff Bezos. And Bezos is worth thinking about too. And to apply my own neuroses and skepticism here, but I simply do not trust a guy who has his sights set on domination like this. I mean, Bezos was 30 when he left Wall Street to start this company. And if you remember from that clip earlier, he said that he didn't want to have any regrets when he was 80. Well, right now, he's at about the midway point between 30 and 80. And he's built a company this big, this dominant, but with this many problems So, how much further will it go between now and then? When does it stop? This never-ending desire for growth, for increased stock values, for vertical and horizontal integration until the whole supply chain is under the Smiley umbrella of Amazon, it's unsettling, to me at least, because we've seen it before. Amazon now is being looked at for a reason that we have often forgotten about when dealing with companies this big. And the word of the day is antitrust, Amazon, like Facebook and Apple and Google and Microsoft, Microsoft, who, by the way, also faced antitrust problems a few decades ago, but all these companies, they get so big, they hold such a dominant position in their markets that they begin to wield power that should, and I say it again, should worry people. Because the standards that Amazon set have a lot more influence than we may think. But I know that it doesn't really worry people. Because just like all the other unfathomably large companies, we simply love what they offer us. People have known about sweatshops and child labor for years, but whenever Old Navy or The Gap or Nike has a sale, 
We're all lining up to cop some fresh new clothes. I don't know. Is anybody going to buy from Amazon less after listening to this? Probably not. Are they going to tell their friends to not buy from Amazon? Again, probably not. It's hard to fight something that is this effective and, to be honest, gives people this much joy in the efficiency and speed at which things can be delivered to their house. Maybe I've spent this long-ass episode arguing a point of morality that simply has been shown to not be effective. Oh, Dan, being a bummer again. Boo, you suck! <laughs> Look, alright, there is so much more to Amazon than I could fit here. And I'm sure I've missed on a bunch of stuff, really. But what I hope is that maybe you, and well, maybe me as well, will reconsider some of our buying habits at least. And think a little bit more about everything that we've gone over here. And hey, maybe I can even encourage you to read a little more about this stuff on your own. Maybe? Kind of? A little homework for you? No? No, okay. We get a little dopey when it comes to these products and services. Because again, we love them. But at the same time... Amazon has a level of power and influence now that would already be incredibly tough to curb. And as they continue to grow, as its CEO pushes towards a trillion dollars of his own, another scary prospect we shouldn't be so comfortable with, but everyone needs to remember what they enable. Unsafe working conditions, exploitation of workers, the undercutting of small businesses, the overutilization of complicated accounting and tax loopholes, the jamming up of postal and delivery services. But maybe most of all, the idea that we trust so much to just a single entity, and in the case of Jeff Bezos, a single man, that really is a lot of faith to put in one place, a lot of eggs in one basket, you could say. And I can hear all the arguments again in my head right now. You know, Bezos built the company, deserves every dollar, or those workers are low-skilled, if they don't like it, go learn a trade or move somewhere else. Both of those arguments are what they have always been. Gross, morally garbage thoughts that let powerful people get away with anything they want because some people simply can't get past the idea that certain human beings are supposed to be flat out superior to others. And maybe that's how you feel. And if you do, I simply would appeal to you to rethink that. But I can't force you to do anything. Otherwise, this show would probably be a lot bigger now, wouldn't it? Oh, maybe there's something to that. Look, I wanted to get to know Amazon and its issues better because it flat out worries me. It worries me that nobody has batted an eye at any of this for years. I don't know, some people have, but clearly not enough. It makes me feel a little weird how much people love that two-day shipping. I mean, really, we can't wait for anything anymore? But I feel like before we go, after this long-ass episode that, again, makes me realize that I need to pick smaller and more specific topics, I feel like I owe you a better takeaway. So, okay, here it goes. It's important to peek behind the smile on the Amazon boxes and discover how they really conduct business because we get used to these things. The PR moves that paint union organizers as devious and uneducated, it makes us believe that it's true. The smiles on the boxes and the instantaneous delivery gives us warm feelings because everybody gets happy when a package arrives for them. The jingly guitar commercials with smiling employees... The promises of doing cool shit in space, all of the good-looking pieces of it all, make it easier to forget about things like the employees being left homeless after being fired for being too injured to work, about the small businesses betrayed and crushed by a trillion-dollar giant, about the new power imbalance, where a corporation can dictate what a government will do, 
where a single man can hold more wealth to his name than a significant portion of a country where he made it. It normalizes things that simply shouldn't be normal. And before long, that normal creeps into other industries, other walks of life. And then it's a massive climb to restore fairness. We're in a battle right now about human rights, racial equality, fairness in legal systems. But we are at the same time completely forgetting that there is a massive inequality problem. A massive problem with labor exploitation. Wages that haven't kept up with inflation for decades. A billion, soon to be trillionaire class, that lives so high above most people we can't even see them. We protest a lot of things right now. But we buy the Bristol board, the markers, the face masks, the t-shirts, and the iron-on letters from places like Amazon, who simply don't care about those issues, not in reality, because all that matters is the stock value goes up, and if it does, then all is well, at least for them. All right, I've rest my case on this one, and oh man, what an episode. Really, if you're still here, I appreciate you. Thank you for listening. Really, seriously, you're a trooper for making it all the way through. I honestly don't blame you if you bailed out, but let me wrap this up quick then. If you like the show, subscribe to it, leave a rating or review for an episode like this. I really seriously would love some direct feedback. Was this episode any good? Was it useful to you? Did you learn anything? Did you get any takeaways? Was it presented in a way that was clear? I'm not some expert podcaster. I still look for open and honest feedback all the time. So if you have thoughts, reach out on Twitter at AssortedGoodsPC or go to AssortedGoodsPod.com and click the contact link on the top right of the homepage. And let me know what you think. Good or bad? Lay it on me. Now you can also find all the articles used to write the episode on AssortedGoodsPod.com. And as always, all credit goes to the journalists, writers, academics, editors, producers of better content than this. Everyone out there who does the legwork so a bum like me can come along and scrape together a shoddy little production like this one. All credit goes to them, and I hope you consider supporting quality journalism and content wherever you find it out there. Anyways, that's it. We're done. Kept you long enough. Thank you again for listening. Stay safe out there. Much love. Take care. And I hope to see you again here on Assorted Goods. So long, folks.
podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness.